Hi, I'm Yusuf Hassam, and you're listening to Africa Aware, a podcast from the Chatham House Africa programme. Welcome back to Africa Aware. On this special episode, we will be exploring climate change in Africa with a high-level policymaker, practitioner and expert. All titles that interviewee has and continues to hold. Africa Aware is honoured to host His Excellency Minister Dr Lee White, the Republic of Gabon's Minister of Water, Forests, the Sea and Environment. In this long-form interview with Minister White, we discuss the immediate impacts of climate change, how infrastructure development can factor in sustainability, the role of private sector in conservation, and the voice of local populations in the decision-making process around this area. What makes this interview even more interesting, for those listeners unaware, Gabon chairs the African Group of Negotiators at the upcoming COP26, otherwise known as the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference. The word COP stands for the Conference of the Parties in the climate change sphere. The parties are the governments which have signed up to the UN Framework Convention of Climate Change. The COP brings together the signatory governments once a year to discuss how to jointly address climate change. The African Group of Negotiators on Climate Change, otherwise known as the AGN, was established at COP1 in Berlin in 1995 as an alliance of African member states that represents the interests of the region in the international climate change negotiations with a common and unified voice. And that is why it's so great to host Minister White for this interview, which we hope you will enjoy. Prior to his role as Minister of Water, Forests, the Sea and Environment, Minister White served as the director of the Gabonese National Parks Agency for 10 years, having previously spent almost 20 years with the Wildlife Conservation Society. His career in the West and Central African forest belt spans 35 years. Minister White continues to publish in major scientific journals. To date, he has published over 94 articles and eight books on the ecology and conservation of tropical forest ecosystems in Africa, which are part of his efforts to incorporate science into his conservation and sustainable development work. Welcome, Minister White. Thank you so much for joining us on Africa Aware. Thank you, it's a pleasure. It's an incredibly important role that you fulfil, of course, in Gabon and as the Minister of Forests, Oceans, Environment and Climate Change. Are you able to tell our audience how you came to being in that role? It's a very long story. The, the, the short version is I, I grew up in Africa, I grew up in Uganda, did most of my primary school in Uganda and worked in Sierra Leone, Nigeria, before heading to Gabon in 1989 to do a PhD. And I then had a series of jobs. I, I was a scientist and I ran an NGO called Wildlife Conservation Society in Gabon. I jumped ship in about 2008, um, having become Gabonese in 2006 or seven. I jumped ship to work for the Ministry of Environment on climate change negotiations. And I was then appointed head of the national parks by President Ali Bongo Ondimbo when he was elected in 2009. And my apprenticeship for becoming a minister was 10 years almost as head of the national parks, which was a very good apprenticeship, I think, because you obviously have to deal with politicians. You have to deal with the local politics of of conservation and the conflict between humans and wildlife. And so that 
allowed me to make that transition from being a scientist to being a politician. An incredible apprenticeship, as you said. Now, uh, I think above everything, when, when coming across your story, when, when the opportunity was, of course, offered, I was fascinated in particular by the fact that, as an individual, of course, your, your diverse experiences all leading into the position that you find yourself in now in such a crucial one, as I mentioned, to begin with. But going into the position itself, how would you assess the current condition of the natural environment in Gabon, both in the national parks, which of course you managed, and other protected areas and the wider environment? Gabon is a high forest, low deforestation country. There are three countries that are on the extreme of what we call HFLD, Gabon, Guyana and Suriname. And so with 88% of our country covered in rainforest and as a country that is about 10% of the African forest, but with over half of the forest elephants, for example, that's a very clear indication of how pristine, how intact the Gabonese forests are. Across Africa, elephants are a very good indicator of natural resource governance, even of sort of peace and security. Countries that lose control of their elephants often go through civil wars and, 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 and if you plotted a graph of you know, some indication of good governance against elephant numbers, you'd probably find a, a, a straight line. Um, and so the fact that Gabon has managed to preserve its many of its elephants in the face of the poaching crisis indicates how good the country is for all the other wildlife, the plants and, and the animals. So we have more plants in Gabon than the whole of West Africa, for example. We have about 15% of our plants are unique to Gabon, endemic to Gabon. Sadly, there are more and more species of animal, bird, plant that are disappearing elsewhere in, in Central Africa. And, are, and Gabon is the last sanctuary for many of those species. So things like the mandrills, the rosy beet. We, we, could, we could name a lot of them. So Gabon has done very well in terms of, of maintaining populations of, of many species that are under a lot of pressure elsewhere in Africa. And so we're building on the fact that just naturally, because of the geological history, Gabon is a very biodiverse country and a biodiverse country that has not destroyed its biodiversity, that has, you know, over the last... 20 years or so through the leadership of first of Omar Bongo and, and, and then of, of the current president, Ali Bongo, we have created national parks. We've moved towards policies of sustainable forestry, of careful land use planning. And, and all of that is designed to maintain our natural capital because we, the, the government, the, 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 the president, have this belief that sustainable development sustainable use of renewable resources is the future for Gabon and maintaining the natural capital, maintaining the balance between development and natural ecosystems is critical to the long-term sustainability of Gabon and as we think about wider issues of climate change and so on, critical to the, the sustainability of our planet. Well, actually, on that topic of climate change, I'm assuming a, a topic that doesn't escape you any hour of the day. Are you able to provide us with your current projections as to the potential impact of climate change and global heating on Gabon, natural environment and, and general biodiversity? Climate change is nothing new to, to our planet, to the African continent. Every time 
Northern Europe experienced an ice age through the Pleistocene, so through the last three million years, it became cooler and drier in Central Africa and the rainforest retracted into what we call refuges, sort of the Noah's Ark of rainforest biodiversity and, and Central Africa was dominated by savannas like, like East Africa and Southern Africa today. And that happened about 20 times, I think, through the Pleistocene. So every time that happened, the plants and the animals experienced climate change. Gabon was one of the sanctuaries for rainforest biodiversity because of our geography. We're, we're on the coast of West Africa and we have mountains, you might call them hills, but we, we call them mountains, up to about a, a thousand meters, quite close to the coast. So humid, warm air comes off the Atlantic, goes up into the hills and it rains. And, and that happens no matter what. So Gabon, because of that geography, is going to resist climate change better than most countries in Africa. Climate change is not a life and death issue for us in Gabon, like it is in the Sahel, for example. And as we look at climate change, we, we realize that at least in the short to medium term, and in terms of the direct impacts of climate change, we're not going to be particularly impacted. Uh, it's true that sea level will rise, it's, so parts of Libreville and Port Gentil, our two major cities, will flood. So there's an economic cost to managing the flooding, potentially. Our second city, Port Gentil, is also the headquarters for most of the oil industry, and its maximum height is two meters above sea level. Okay. And so with the extreme predictions of increased sea level, Port Gentil could disappear in the next century. So we may have to move a whole city. Wow. So that has an economic cost uh, that we need to plan for immediately. But Nobody's going to die of thirst. Nobody's, you know, crops are not going to fail in Gabon. What, what we do with our forests in Gabon and in the Congo Basin directly impacts countries which are much more susceptible to climate change. And so the rainfall in, in the Sahel of Nigeria and Niger is generated in part by the rainforests of Gabon and, and Congo Brazzaville. The, the rainfall in Ethiopia is generated in part by, by humid air coming up from the eastern Congo Basin, from DRC. And so if we lose the rainforests, first we lose the stock of carbon that's, that's in the, the, the trees, the plants, the soil. And we have about 10 years of global emissions stored in the carbon of the rainforests of Congo Basin. But if we lose those rainforests, we lose the rainfall, for example, in Ethiopia, we lose the flow of the Blue Nile, we lose agriculture in Egypt. And so for me, that is one future for Africa. The future where the world does not deal with climate change, where we're unsuccessful in Glasgow at COP26, is a future that sees rainfall failing in many countries which are already rainfall stressed. There are already reports that suggest that over half of the African countries will experience civil strife, civil war, because of climate change if we don't deal with climate change. And in that future of Africa, we're not talking about thousands or tens of thousands of refugees crossing the Mediterranean. We're talking about hundreds of millions of climate refugees from 
the Sahel from the Horn of Africa moving south mostly into the Congo Basin, so cutting the rainforests and increasing climate change. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of Africans moving north across the Mediterranean. And that is a, for me, that is, I'm a politician today. I was a scientist, a climate scientist and a forest history scientist before. For me, that is, it's not a model. It's not a hypothesis. It is one of the futures that is staring us in the face if the global community doesn't deal with climate change. If we do deal with climate change, then maybe we can, we can avoid that future. So, so in, in that alternate future, Gabon will disappear. There will be tens, hundreds of millions of, of refugees moving into the rainforest of Gabon. They'll cut our forest down. Gabon is a country of two million inhabitants. We will become a minority in our own country, and our country will cease to exist in, in that future of our planet. And so whilst we are resilient in terms of the direct impacts of climate change, the entire African continent will be destabilized by climate change if we get it wrong. And interestingly, we had a meeting a couple of weeks ago with Baroness Scotland at the Commonwealth, and you know, many African countries are members of the Commonwealth, but there are also many small island states in the Commonwealth. And many of those small island states, including some African small island states, will disappear under the waves. They will, they will be gone. They, their countries will no longer exist. So we take the issue of climate change very seriously. We take that responsibility as stewards of the Congo Basin very seriously. And if you look at the major international events that President Ali Bongo Ndumba has attended from, from Copenhagen onwards, even before becoming president as Minister of Defense, he understood the link between climate and peace and security. That's what brought him together with Prince Charles back in 2008, 2009, when Prince Charles was had his rainforest project, and then when he brought 20 heads of state together at the G20 in London to talk about fast start, you know, red finance, financing rainforests to keep rainforests standing. So... It's definitely been for the president a very important aspect of his international diplomacy. And in my title as minister, I am the minister of water, forests, the seas and the environment, charged with climate change and land use planning. And the charged with is charge de in French, is because the president personally chairs our climate council, our national climate council. So I am the minister, a bit like the Sherpa, who is implementing the president's policy on climate change across the government. And that, you know, that just reinforces the fact that climate change is really important for Gabon, even though in the next five or 10 years, we will not suffer to the same extent as other countries in Africa. But no, as, as you said, the interconnected nature of it all is really the concerning exactly. part. Yeah. And so that's really, really interesting. I think moving on to more on a domestic level, and actually the land use element of your role, in rural areas, in particular forest regions, how do you manage the balance of interests between local populations, indigenous communities, in the protection, of course, of uh, natural species, and, and how are these indigenous societies coping with the development that you spoke about earlier? We flinch slightly when people talk about indigenous communities in Gabon. 
There's been a tendency, particularly from NGOs, to oversimplify the dynamics in Central Africa. And so many NGOs that cut their teeth in the Amazon in South America, where you have indigenous communities and you have more recent settlers, and the dynamic between those two peoples can be quite complex. When they came into Central Africa, many of those NGOs decided that the pygmy communities are indigenous and the Bantu communities are somehow foreign. And, and that's not true. The Bantu peoples have been in Gabon for 5,000 years. It's quite a long time. We don't know about the pygmy peoples because I'm a sort of amateur archaeologist. The pygmy people don't leave traces behind. They don't use make stone tools. And because there's no written record, it's difficult to know, you know exactly their history. So in Gabon, in our constitution, everybody is equal. Certainly the Bantu and the Pygmy, we have about 60 different tribes in Gabon, eight or nine Pygmy tribes and about 50 Bantu tribes. Everybody is considered indigenous. And so the way we look at it is more a question of rural communities. How do parks, how do forestry concessions, how does land use impact rural communities who who were living in those places before the modern world arrived. And, 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 and so with the parks, we tried hard to create parks without people in them. Today, I wonder if that was the right thing to do. But when you look at the history of Gabon, around 75 years ago, the French colonial administration forcibly moved all rural people out of the forest and aligned them along the roads. And so they emptied rural Gabon of people. If you look at the maps from the 30s and the 40s, there are villages all over Gabon. And then you look at the maps at Independence and all of the villages are lined along the roads. That had a huge impact on the forests. Forests grew back where people had been living and we'd had agriculture. Wildlife rebounded. Um, where people had been hunting them and, 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 and consuming wildlife. And so artificially, much of rural Gabon is empty. And so we were able to create these national parks with almost nobody in them. In some cases, you have to walk two days from the nearest village to get to the park, to the edge of the park. And so the park doesn't have any impact on, on rural communities in some cases. In other cases... People are living close to the park or, or even for a few very small communities living inside the park. And where that's the case, we don't remove them. We don't forcibly move them out of the park. We delimit their traditional areas and, and we allow them to continue their, their traditional life if that's, that's what they want to do. Same thing with forestry. Uh, we've not always managed it as well as we should have done. One of the problems I'm dealing with as minister is the fact that we have about 600 villages inside logging concessions. The way in the past we've managed that is by imposing on the forestry companies a contract with local communities such that local communities get a financial flow from the, the forestry activities and that money gets invested in schools, dispensaries, that you know that sort of thing. It's, it's, it's not been managed that well in the past. We're improving that today and we're actively looking at 
potential sort of land tenure reform. We're currently doing participative mapping of every village in Gabon. So there are about 2,600 villages. We've got a four-year program to work with every village in a participatory way to map out their resource use. So where they farm, where they hunt, where they fish, where they collect plants, medicine, whatever the activity is. And when we finish that, that's part of our national land use plan. When we finish that, we will go through a a process of, of, of evaluating how best to manage that into the future. In South Korea, about 50 years ago, the government gave every citizen five hectares of land. And some people say that was the origin of the economic development of South Korea. So, so we, we might consider something like that, but we, we have to collect the data first so that we have a, a map of, you could say, traditional land use community land use. And now we'll think about how do we integrate tradi the traditional world and the modern world in the most you know, kind of optimal, fair manner. We have community forests. We might expand the community forest principle. Obviously, we have the potential to give title to land and so on. And so that's going to be a very interesting process over the next few years. And it's critical to how rural people, forest people, are integrated into the development of the country. Today, people are marching, protesting against elephants in Mikambo, in northern Gabon. We've been so successful at protecting elephants. And actually, based on some very long-term research we've been doing in central Gabon in Lope National Park, with the University of Stirling, where we have a 40-year database of how climate change is impacting the forest. We've, we've shown that the elephants are thinner today than they were 20 years ago. And we think that's because climate change is reducing the amount of fruit the rainforest trees are producing. And so we seem to have a, a situation where climate change is impacting the forest, which is impacting the elephants. The elephants are going hungry. And so... Even though we have less elephants today than we had 20 years ago because of poaching, the human-elephant conflict is becoming worse and worse. We think that these hungry elephants are coming out of the forest and they're raiding people's crops because they can't find enough food to feed themselves in their traditional home. To the extent that you know, some local communities are struggling to feed themselves because the elephants are eating all the food. And, and, and so that's quite an acute problem that we're now having to deal with. Do we kill the elephants? Do we shoot elephants when they come into people's villages? Can we, you know, what we've been trying electric fences to protect people's crops. And if you have a well-maintained electric fence, you can actually separate the elephants from the people. And so th this issue of human-wildlife conflict mm. in a country like Gabon, where the wildlife is, is relatively intact, becomes a, another issue that you have to deal with. And, and in some ways, the extreme of that is what we've all just been going through, COVID-19. COVID-19 came from wildlife, probably from bats. There are lots of coronaviruses circulating in Central African wildlife. That may be part of the reason that mortality from COVID-19 has been quite low in Central Africa. There may be some resistance in the human populations because we're exposed to coronaviruses and the wildlife. But avoiding the next pandemic 
by better managing the interface between people and wildlife. Again, it's one of those questions that, that uneducated people who don't understand the biology of disease get a bit confused about. But, but as a government, we have to look very carefully about how do we manage this very biodiverse ecosystem because biodiversity includes viruses and, 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 and diseases. So how do we manage that interface between people and the natural world? To follow on more about people, Gabon, of course, has some lively civil society voices. Very uh, lively, <laughs> some of them, yes. To say the least, speaking on the environment and generally forest issues as well. How does the interaction work with these independent campaigners between the government and the general forestry sector itself? Like any country, there are different NGOs. In, in the UK, you have Greenpeace and you have World Wildlife Fund. And World Wildlife Fund is very diplomatic and institutional, working hand-in-hand hand with government, and Greenpeace, Greenpeace is a pressure group. So we get that in Gabon. We have environmental groups that just get on and deal with conservation issues. Like, like you know, There's quite a few small NGOs working on sea turtles, and, and how we protect sea turtles when they come to nest in Gabon. Some of them have been going on for 20, 30 years. You almost never hear from them unless there's an issue with fishing boats catching turtles in their nets, and then we look for a technical solution to that. We have some NGOs which are, you know, take more that pressure group approach, so we hear a lot more from them in social media and, and so on. And, and then you take... There are some of these NGOs which are quite political. NGO is theoretically non-political, non-government organization. But in Gabon, it's much easier to create an NGO than a political party. You, know, you don't need to get 5,000 signatures to create an NGO. Two of, you know, the two of us could get together and create an NGO. You know, there are certain NGOs that say that Lee White or even Ali Bongondemba has never done anything for the environment. Uh, Ali Bongondemba, who created 20 marine parks three years ago, covering 27% of our EEZ. Ali Bongondimba, who's been pushing the world to react to climate change. And so some of these NGOs, I, I, I think of them more as political parties than NGOs. They're, they're criticizing to criticize. And so yeah, I respect the work of the technical NGOs, and I try and work with them. We try and work with them. We take note of the pressure groups, and obviously a pressure group de facto doesn't work with government, they're trying to put pressure on government to act differently. We have very responsible NGOs working around Libreville putting pressure on us to stop the deforestation of the mangroves. And they're publishing photographs and reports every, every week showing little hot spots of, of mangrove deforestation within Libreville. And very often the Ministry of Environment teams then go out and follow up and, 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 and so they're helping us to control a situation. Some of the social media, um, there, I don't know if you follow Gabonese social media, but over the last two or three weeks, there's been a lot of sort of science fiction written about me. Apparently I was seeking asylum in the UK because a, a diamond mining operation that I have with the First Lady went wrong. Yeah, some of this stuff is just so ridiculous that, that 
it's difficult to believe that people believe it. But I got quite a lot of messages from Gabon saying, you know, have you really fled the country? Yeah. It, so, must, it must be particularly interesting, especially because you're, a, you're someone who, of course, came from a research background, someone who was fundamentally not a politician their whole life and, and came into a role because of your expertise to be seen in the same manner. I am a scientist who is now a politician. I'm a technical politician. In, in Gabon, we do have some technical ministers where we tend to put more technical people. But uh, obviously, you know, the, the political role is very different to the technical role. I'm lucky to be Minister of Environment, Climate Change. So my technical background actually gives my political voice more weight in certain fora. When I go to the climate change negotiations and Gabon is currently the chair of the African group of negotiators. So I may well end up at COP26 when the ministers are there speaking for Africa. The fact that I'm also publishing, still publishing science and nature and science and, 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 and so on, lends some additional weight to my political voice. And so it helps me sometimes, not always, it doesn't necessarily help me deal with all of this social media nonsense and, and the polarized view that the, the government and the opposition tend to have in any, in any country. Of course, in any, um, any democracy. In any democracy. And we're, I think we're very tolerant of that in, in Gabon. When you read some of the crazy stories that you see in the newspapers and on social media in Gabon, and you, you see the approach of the government, which is to just let people say whatever they want to say, I think, I think, we, I think we deal with it fairly, fairly well. Okay. And actually, moving on to another area that I'd love to explore with you, particularly around development. So when it comes to, of course, your, your role in land use planning, what criteria govern your decisions regarding infrastructure? So in the context of, of course, climate change and the environment itself. So, for example, new roads opening up in forest regions or projects such as dams and mines, etc., that may erode or, or, or destroy elements of the environment. How do, you, how do you make that decision? Rather like for climate change, where I'm the Sherpa for the president's policies, I'm also the minister charged with land use planning. And I actually went to the president and the prime minister last year and said, it might not make sense for me to be the minister of land use planning because as the minister of forestry, I'm also the biggest land user. In terms of parks and forestry, we occupy 80% of the country. And, and so there's potential for conflict of interest there. And uh, I was told very clearly that um, I'm not the Minister of Land Use Planning, I'm charged with land use planning and my job is to be an honest broker and to be objective. And it's perhaps because I'm technical as well as political that they put that faith in me. And so all land use decisions, all new attributions of, of land use go through an interministerial commission that includes all of the ministries and all of the technical departments involved or, or, or likely to, to have something to say about land use. And we're very technical about it. We, before discussing an, a, a, a potential, we've done recently, recently we've developed some special agricultural zones where, where, where we've set land aside um, for agriculture. Before doing that, we did a quite deep technical analysis of land quality, 
weather patterns and so on to make sure that the land was technically optimal for agriculture. We looked at all other potential uses of the land. We looked at things like elephant corridors to try and minimize this problem of human-elephant conflict. You don't want to put your agricultural zone on a corridor that's critical for elephant migration. And so we have quite a measured approach to, to any sort of new land attribution. So if we were to want to plan a new road, I think it's fairly unlikely because we have, we have roads all over Gabon, partly because of the forestry industry, we've, we've, we've created laterite roads. So we might want to tar one of those laterite roads, but it, I think it's fairly unlikely that we would want to do a new road. But we might want to put a hydroelectric dam somewhere that might involve flooding some land. We might have a new mine. You know, we have a very big reserve of iron in northeast Gabon in a place called Belinga with over, over a billion tons of very rich iron ore. So at, at one point, we will probably want to move that iron ore somewhere <laughs> to China, to, to Libreville, so we're already factoring that into our land use plan. We already know where the railway would go when we build it to get to that deposit. We've already planned that with respect to the national parks and so on. So on a case-by-case basis, we're, we're quite carefully trying to optimize land use attribution. And in the sort of the medium term, we're also looking at potential future land uses and planning for that as we as we plan today. So, you know, I think it's a very healthy approach. It includes local communities, so doing the community mapping and, and, and making sure we're not putting land use in, in critical places for the local communities, the forest communities. And so I spend uh, you know, probably 20% of my job as minister is, is dealing with these land use issues. And actually, when it comes to the private sector now, and of course we, we exist in an environment where development requires often external financing. It requires companies and, and organizations mm-hmm. coming into your country. When it comes to the major investors in, in Gabon itself, what leverage exists for you as a minister and actually for the, for the wider government to ensure they're fulfilling their responsibilities, not solely from a fiduciary perspective, but also from an environmental one to ensure that? Gabon can fulfill the criteria that it believes is necessary to ensure the country can benefit? I think if we think first about the forest, obviously I'm the Minister of Forests, and so I deal with forestry and timber processing. The approach we've taken is to adopt quite strict laws, putting in place the the principle of sustainable use of the forest. So you have to do a sustainable plan forestry plan if you're attributed a concession and we look very carefully at that to make sure that you know it's it's been well done when president ali bongo banned the export of logs from gabon in from 2010 onwards we started to develop a modern timber transformation industry when you export logs you retain eight percent of the value so, so you retain less than 10% of the value in country and you gift 90% of the value to whoever is buying your logs. So for 100 years, Gabon gifted 90% of the profits from timber to France, to Germany, to, to China, to, to the US. Uh, today, we are trying to add value in country, retain more of the value in Gabon. When we were gifting 90% 
of the value of the timber, we were also gifting 90% of the jobs. And so what we're trying to do today is to create sustainable jobs for the Gabonese people based on a sustainable forestry industry where we have strong environmental guidelines on the basis that if we're not sustainable, those jobs are not sustainable. But if we are sustainable, then we can exploit the forest at the same time as maintaining the, 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 the carbon stocks and, and the biodiversity, and we can create a sustainable future for the men and women of, of Gabon. And we can literally create hundreds of thousands of jobs in that sustainable sector. And, and, and so we're working with private sector. It's, it's some, there's sometimes a bit of tension because we're trying to maximize jobs and profits in Gabon. And, and when it's a foreign company, they need to generate profits outside of Gabon. So, so there's a little bit of tension there sometimes, but we think of it as critical for the future of the forests of Gabon and potentially the Congo Basin. I obviously have less to do with decisions about mining and, and, and so on, but within the land use sphere, we're, we're looking at those decisions. If I were to let, as Minister of Environment, if I were to let companies coming into Gabon behave badly and destroy fragile ecosystems, destroy our natural capital, then I would undermine the president's international reputation. Ali Bongondimba cannot be the president who is pushing on climate change and biodiversity and, and parks and against wildlife crime, whilst back at home we're destroying these ecosystems. So I have a responsibility to him, to the government, to make sure that we are applying sound international norms in Gabon. And as you said, there are some quite animated, lively NGOs who are watching that. And so where we don't do our job, NGOs like Croissant uh, Seine, Brain Forest and so on are, are focusing the spotlight on that and putting pressure on us. And, and, and we, we always react positively to that. We always, when the alarm is sounded, we, we send people into the field and we deal with the problem. So, so uh, it's not perfect. It's never perfect. But we're, we certainly take these issues very seriously as a government, as a country. And we're trying to maintain that balance which... For many decades, when it was foreign companies exploiting on the African continent, was not the case. Uh, and foreign companies have done a lot of damage in Africa over the decades. We, we're fortunate that that is perhaps less the case in Gabon, and we are determined to make sure that we don't follow that, that pathway. We often talk about when did climate change start? When, when, you know, from what point do you hold countries responsible? And my thought is probably it's the first Rio conference in, in 92. And Omar Bongo went to that conference and he gave a speech. And in it, he said something along the lines of, in French, obviously, but all too often in Africa, we have been pushed to develop no matter what the cost. And what he was saying was that we've been pushed to develop without considering the environmental costs of that development because we're trying to catch up with the rest of the world. And I think that was really perceptive at the time. And that's something that, that I think about every day in my, my role as Minister of the Environment. We do not want to develop no matter what the cost to future generations. We want future generations of Gabonese people to have a sound environment. And so that's the job that we're trying to do today. 
No, completely. And actually, a point you raised earlier that I found really poignant and I'd love for you to explore further is the fact that you see Gabon and yourselves as the shepherds of the Congo Basin. Do you believe partners, both on an international level and, of course, domestically or regionally, understand the investment case for keeping the forest standing? How critical is cooperation with Gabon's neighbouring Central African countries in efforts to save the Congo Basin as a carbon-positive, of course, sink? Yeah. I think the first thing to say, I'll go back to my scientist role, and I actually published a scientific paper last week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences with a, a group of British, mostly British, climate specialists where we once again demonstrate that the African rainforests are much more resilient to climate change than the Amazon and then the rainforests of Southeast Asia. And we think that may be because Africa was much more impacted by climate change in the past. You know, five million years ago, there was a very severe drought. Lots of the rainforests died or burnt. And that was what pushed our ancestors to move out into the savannas of Eastern and Southern Africa. So even the very existence of human beings is linked to climate stresses in, on the African continent. And so we have a more resilient rainforest. The Amazon is becoming a source of carbon dioxide. More and more trees are dying from drought and fire. The African rainforest is still sucking in carbon dioxide. We're a sink for carbon dioxide. And so every year, Gabon absorbs about 100 million tonnes of carbon dioxide net. So we offset all of our emissions. We're not aiming for carbon neutrality. We are carbon neutral, but we're even much better than that. We're absorbing about a quarter to a third of the UK's annual emissions into our rainforests. And the same is true in Congo. In, in DRC, deforestation rates have gone up, so they're about neutral today. But the Congo Basin is being proved to be actually more climate critical for the planet than we thought before. We're only a third the size of the Amazon, but we have higher carbon per hectare on average, and we're absorbing about four or five times more carbon dioxide per hectare than the Amazon is. And so proportionately, Africa's absorbing more CO2 than the Congo Basin is absorbing more CO2 than the Amazon. If all of the rest of the Congo Basin forests are cut and Gabon is left standing, the, the Ogwe Basin, if you want, is left standing on its own, then we will lose many of the ecosystem services that the Congo Basin provides to the region and to the planet. So we talked about the impact of Congo Basin forests on rainfall patterns around the continent of Africa. If we lost the vast forests of DRC, the forests of Congo-Brazzaville, if we lost the incredible peat deposits that have been discovered over the last 10 years by Simon Lewis and his team from, from Leeds and UCL, working with scientists in the Congo Basin, then the planet cannot achieve the 1.5 or the 2 degree target. And the forests of Gabon would wither and die if we lose the forests of Congo and, and, and DRC. So, so absolutely, we have to work together to preserve the Congo Basin. We might have different approaches in different countries, 
the population pressure in DRC is much higher than, than in Gabon. So we might have different approaches, but we have to work together to maintain that entire ecosystem because it's in the interdependent. We're in it together. And ideally, we need to work with the countries of West Africa to bring back their forests. We're starting to understand that in, I worked in Sierra Leone 35, 40 years ago, in rural communities in the rainforest, where today they have to walk 10 kilometers because all the streams have dried up because they cut the forest down. We need to replant some of those forests. Obviously, we need space for agriculture, for people and so on, but we need to go through the process that Costa Rica went through. You know, people often cite Costa Rica as this model of conservation and forest management. Well, that's actually not true. Costa Rica cut all its forests down. You know, they went down to about 20% forest cover 30 years ago. And where they've been remarkable is the way they've brought it back. They've come back from 20% to almost 60% today. And they've brought back those ecosystem services. They've brought back the rainfall and the water. And if the international community puts in place some form of forest carbon credit that is more than the $5 a ton they, they offer us today, then maybe West Africa can bring back some of its forests. And you know, we, obviously we have the Green Belt initiative across the Sahel as well. And potentially we can restore some of these ecosystem services that we've lost and at the same time contribute to fighting against climate change. And, and so I think definitely Congo Basin countries need to work together, but we should have much more synergy with the West African nations. And I think the rest of Africa... I don't know which way it goes. Should the rest of Africa acknowledge our importance or should we kind of acknowledge our importance to the rest of Africa? But, but sometimes when we go into the climate negotiations and, and we start talking about the Congo Basin rainforests, other African countries have a little tendency to kind of turn off slightly. Oh, yeah, you're talking about your forests again. But we need to work together because we're, it's all interdependent. Yeah, Ethiopia is not independent of the Congo Basin. Nigeria is not independent of the Congo Basin. So we all need to work together to try and optimize how we deal with this this global issue of climate change. Completely. In the context of COVID, it was build back better. Hopefully it's plant back better for much of the regions itself. Apologies for the <laughs> for the cliche there. And actually, to ask you about COP, as, as of course you've mentioned it just now, is the African agenda for COP26 sufficiently understood? And, and supported by developed countries as, as they would be framed? The African agenda is understood. It's been very clearly expressed to the world. Africa is, is working with the rest of the global community to try and mitigate climate change. But we are the continent the most impacted by a problem that we did not create. The African continent, and then I would add the small island states, which isn't a continent, but as a group of, of countries with similar characteristics. And so for the African continent, adaptation and the financing of adaptation is critical. Literally, we, we are seeing, in some countries, we are seeing Africans dying because of climate change. It's, it's a matter of life and death for many young rural Africans. And so it's a very dramatic issue that is only going to get more and more dramatic um, over the next decades. And so as the continent that 
you know, the figure is we, we contributed three or four percent of greenhouse gases and we are going to uh, have to foot the bill for adapting to climate change and it's potentially going to cost significant percentages of our, our, our economies are going to have to be spent on dealing with climate change. And so finance for adaptation is critical for Africa, making sure that the agreement is balanced, you know, balanced between mitigation and adaptation, and ensuring that, that the, the circumstances of Africa are taken into account in the agreement are, are all critical issues that we have clearly expressed Gabon currently is the the spokesperson for Africa as the chair of the African group of negotiators. But we have an, a very active team of negotiators from, from all around Africa who, by consensus, agree on the position and express it. And whilst I've been here in the UK, I've, I met with Alok Sharma, who will be the COP, the COP president. I met with Lord Zach Goldsmith, who's, who's very involved, the president Ali Bongo met with the Prime Minister and climate change and COP26 were obviously you know, on the agenda for those discussions. Africa is not a major polluter. Sometimes in these negotiations you, you get the impression that the, the weight of your words is proportional to your emissions. Sometimes when they have climate change meetings at head of state or senior level, it's all the major emitters that get invited and, and, and the countries that are going to be most impacted by climate change do not necessarily get invited. So we have to work hard as the African continent to ensure that our voice, that our message is taken seriously. I think, and, and this is something we talked to Baroness Scotland at the Commonwealth the other day about, I think, an alliance between Africa and the small island states as the two groups of countries that are going to be most impacted, which would bring together 80 or more countries. Um, so almost half the countries attending these meetings, if we, if we could bring our voices together, then they have to be heard. But we have to maintain cohesion you know, obviously Africa is a very diverse continent and, and we're not all facing the same challenges. And so we have to, to make sure that we are listening to each other and presenting that unified negotiating position. If we do that, we are a quarter of the countries sitting in the room. If, if we express ourselves strongly and together, and we do our homework, then our voice will be heard. And we certainly have had assurances from the UK government who are going to be chairing the COP that Africa is very important for them. They consider the issues that Africa faces as something that COP26 needs to be focusing on. And perhaps fortunately for, for Africa, the next COP, COP27, will be on the African continent. And so hopefully we can continue in, in that vein. Not completely there, and actually to follow up on to COP27 itself, as, as you mentioned, where it will take place. Do you believe that African leaders, and of course as, as the spokespeople for, for the continent with regards to COP26, do you believe that it will be prioritised by, by, by your colleagues across different governments to ensure that climate change is at the forefront of their minds? As you mentioned, their countries will be the most affected. 
do you believe that that will result in, in, in a shift in, in mentalities or mindset or a furthering of the narrative that, that really green economies must be the priority? I think it has to be the case. I've been doing this for so long now that sometimes it's difficult to take a step back and think about what progress have we made. But I, but I think if, if, if I had turned off for 10 years and, and, and come back, I think over the last 10 years we have made progress. I, I think many of our leaders, many of our heads of state are more and more aware of the consequences of climate change. I think we still need to go further. I think, I think people like me who are technical need to continue to explain because it can be difficult for people who are not, have not focused on these issues for as long as I have to, to, to project 10, 20, 30 years into the future. It's, it's a bit like science fiction. Um, and it's the, the, the actual, the potential consequences of climate change in Africa are so dramatic, it really does sometimes feel a bit like Hollywood. And so I, you know, I'm very fortunate to be the Minister of Environment in Gabon, where Ali Bongo Ndimba is the president, because that makes my job very easy. And I know that he spends a lot of his time talking to his peers about these issues. And I think together we are. We, countries are taking it more and more seriously. We still need to take it more seriously because I, I still don't see that our collective reaction is in proportion to the threat and so it's important to do more no completely and and i think my last question for you is how far do you believe climate change considerations have been integrated into post-covid recovery packages for, for african countries as you mentioned the current president's predecessor mentioned at that conference in 1992 if i'm not mistaken that development is seen regardless of cost is being important on the back of COVID, do you believe that a similar narrative exists or do you believe that there's much more consideration that we have to really, yes, build back better, but in a manner that is sustainable? I hear all the talk. We're all talking the talk. I'm not convinced we're walking the walk. You know, we've been through a serious global economic crisis on the back of the health crisis. It certainly makes sense. We need to invest to, to improve economies around the world. If we can invest in green energy in Africa, that would be a way to both push the economy and deal with these climate issues. So I think it, it makes absolute sense. But I think that both you know, within Africa but, but our partners, I, I, I don't quite sense that we're achieving in terms of action all of the... The, the great words that we're, we're pronouncing. Uh, so I, I think if we were at school, I think the mark would be could do better. And hopefully we will continue to do better. Thank you so much, Professor Lee White, Minister, for your time and for your, of course, incredible insights into the realities of, of your role, of, of the role of Gabon, and actually climate change on the continent as a whole. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you, and I'm sure our audience will be very appreciative. Great, thank you. I enjoyed myself.
And that brings us to an end of this episode of Africa where we hope you've enjoyed listening. Please do subscribe on the platform that you're listening to us on to ensure you don't miss an episode. And do leave a review as that will allow others to find this podcast easier. Thanks for listening to Africa where I've been your host Yusuf Hassan. Goodbye. <laughs>